Amen. I hope and pray that we will grow as a church in our trust in God alone as we come into this new year and that uh, one of the fundamental ways God helps us to do these things is through the study of his word. And so this morning we're going to continue in our study of First Samuel. Uh, so if you'll go ahead and turn, if you've not already, to First Samuel chapter 17. And this is probably the most recognized uh, or at least talked about chapter in the book of First Samuel. One of the most recognized in the entire Bible because uh, this is where we find the story of David and Goliath. And, and even for those who know little of the scripture, uh, they've likely heard a reference to David and Goliath. Uh, but it's important for us to understand what's taking place in chapter 17 in the context of First Samuel and of what we've been studying uh, over the course of months now. And so if you've been with us, you know that we're now at a point where God has removed his blessing from Saul. Saul, who had been anointed the first king over Israel, uh, he has sinned against God, he has disobeyed God, and so God has literally removed his spirit from him, his anointing from him, and there's this broken, really severed relationship between God and Saul. And now God has chosen to go ahead and, and anoint a new king over Israel. And the process of that has started, although rather privately, as Samuel has gone and anointed David. Uh, now, everyone's not looking to David at this point as the king, as a leader, or even as a warrior. But much of that's going to change as these events unfold, uh, particularly what happens in the latter part of chapter 17. And so today we're just going to look at the, the first half of 1 Samuel 17. Uh, this is the longest chapter in the book of 1 Samuel, and so it's hard to take all this in in one Sunday. Uh, so we're going to break it up into to two sermons this morning. One, because it is long, but, but second, because there's a lot for us to learn. Um, there are some things that we won't even be able to, to touch. There's so much in this chapter, and so I really want to take at least a couple of weeks to process what we're, we're learning here uh, from this account of David and Goliath. So for today, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 30. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this passage for us uh, this Lord's Day. So as we come to first 1, we come to a familiar scene where Israel is now at, at battle again with the Philistines. And this is what God's word says. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, in a camp between Soko and Ezka, the in Ephesdemim, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Allah, and drew up a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? 
Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Is he, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle. The names of his three sons who went into the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinanab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The eldest three followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parchment, of this parched grain, and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp in the camp to your brothers. And take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment at the host as the host was going out into the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the, approach, the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know the presumption and the evil in your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. If you would pray with me. Father God, as we come to a, a familiar scene, at least uh, parts of this are familiar to us, I, I pray that you might help us to better understand what's taking place here in your word. And that ultimately, that through your word, we might better understand and respond to the gospel. And we ask this in the only name that we can ask it in, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, as I've mentioned already, David and Goliath is a, a very familiar story to many of us. Even those who've never opened up the Bible are at least somewhat familiar with David and Goliath, or at least with the reference of David and Goliath, because in our culture today, the reference of David and Goliath has kind of become the reference to the underdog. And in fact, many people look to this story as the, the ultimate underdog story, particularly when you consider the arena of sports and sports movies. One of my favorite sports movies is the movie Hoosiers. Now, how many of you have seen the movie Hoosiers? Okay, if your hand's not up, there's your New Year's resolution. Go watch Hoosiers. Uh, it's a great film. It's inspired by a true story, loosely based on a true story, uh, of a small-town basketball team in Indiana who, against all odds, they're the underdog. They make it to the state championship, and they're, they're playing against this uh, much larger team from a much bigger city, and, and all the odds are against them. It's the ultimate underdog story and there's this scene in it where they're gathered there in the locker room before they go out to take the court for the state championship and the the coach who's played by Gene Hackman's kind of going around and saying a few words to the players and the players are saying a few words to him and then the, the team chaplain comes out to pray and essentially his prayer is just loosely quoted from 1 Samuel 17. As he comes out, he says, And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the head, and he fell to the ground. Amen. And then you all know what's going to happen. <laughs> the little team goes out there and they overcome the odds and they run the picket fence and they win the state championship. Uh, David beats Goliath. That, that's the underdog story, and it's told over and over again. You, you hear sports commentators referring to the little guy, the little team, as, as the David, and they're taking on the, the big bad Goliath. And so as we think about David and Goliath, we typically think of it in these terms as this great underdog story. But as we look at 1 Samuel 17... I think what we find is this really isn't an underdog story. In fact, I want to kind of push back against that narrative a little bit because as we look to the scripture, and especially in the context, the victor in 1 Samuel 17 is the victor in every battle with the army of Israel. The victor is God. And friend, God is no underdog. And in fact, if there's an underdog in this story, well, it's Goliath. He's the one seeking to take on the armies of the living God. And so if this isn't just an underdog story, then what is it? Or what is it we are to learn today from it? Well, as I mentioned already, I want to break this chapter down into two parts, two halves. And so what we're going to do is this. Today, in our first look at 1 Samuel 17, we're going to look at the issue of faith. And specifically, we're going to look at the contrast we see here between David and Saul. As you've already seen as we've been walking through the first 16 chapters, 1 Samuel is really a book of contrast. And here we see a great contrast between David and Saul, particularly as it comes to the issue of faith. So that's primarily what we're going to look at today. And then next Lord's Day, we're going to look at how this chapter, this passage, really serves in a way bigger than 1 Samuel. It really points us towards the big picture of the gospel. Because what we see throughout God's word 
is there are these types, there are these pictures. And the type and the picture we see here is really a picture of Jesus and what Jesus accomplishes through the gospel. So we'll kind of hint at that a bit today. We'll get much more into that next Lord's Day. And so hopefully you'll continue in your perfect attendance for the year and you can be here with us uh, next week as we look at the second part of this chapter. But for today, let's look at this issue of faith and what we learn about faith in the first 30 verses here. Beginning with the, the first of two points I'll put there in your outline, we're reminded that the foundation of our faith is a right relationship with God. That in order to have faith, to walk in faith, to exercise faith, it all starts with the foundation of having a right relationship with God. And we are reminded of that as we examine this contrast between Saul and David. Now again, let's look at the context. Uh, The context here is that uh, there's a familiar scene. The Israelites and the Philistines are at war against each other. And as we've already seen in other battles, the way this would take place is essentially there would be a large valley area in between them and then two peaks on either side. And the armies would encamp on those peaks and they would come down into the valley and they would wage their battle there. And so on one side of the valley, you have the Israelites. On the other side of the valley, you have the Philistines. And as they have this battle line in the middle, we're introduced to this uh, very um, large figure, this very imposing figure, uh, Goliath of Gath. The first thing we learn about him here is his size, uh, that his height was six cubits and a span. Now, I'm not real familiar with common core math or new math, but I'm pretty sure you don't use cubits in new math. You don't use cubits in old math, so... It kind of helps us to understand ancient measurements in in order to to grasp what's taking place here. And so in ancient Israel, in ancient times, a cubit, you you didn't walk around with a a tape measure on your hip, and so a cubit had to do with your body. So the length of a cubit really depended on the person measuring a cubit. A cubit was the length between the elbow and the middle finger. Kind of this forearm area was a cubit. And that's how you had a unit of measurement. Now, obviously, that would be different for different people. Uh, Last night, I took out a tape measure, and I found that that my cubit, if I'm measuring things, is 19 and a half inches. And then I went and measured Sandy, and her cubit is three inches shorter than my cubit. And so I have the greatest cubit in the house. And so I measured uh, all the kids, and they were somewhere in between the two. And so when you kind of add up these numbers and divide them, you you come to an average of about 18 inches. And if you notice in your Bible, for some of you, there's a little footnote there beside cubit, and it says about 18 inches. And that's the measurement approximately between the elbow and the tip of the middle finger. And so you start doing the math there. Well, a, a cubit, he, he was six cubits in height. That's rather large. And a span. Uh, a span was approximately half a cubit. So again, that would depend on the person measuring it. Maybe somewhere between you know, six, seven, eight, nine inches, maybe a little bit more. And so when you add these numbers up, you come up with a figure of about nine and a half feet. And, and that's the picture we have here of Goliath. Now, again, remember, that, that could be off by as much as a foot. It may be that it was eight and a half feet tall. It might have been it was closer to ten feet tall. And that's not outside the realm of what we see even in the modern world today. In fact, if you've ever been uh, to Gatlinburg, as you're walking down the strip there and getting your foot-long corn dog and watching them make the taffy, you come to one of the 8,000 Ripley's Museums that are in Gatlinburg, and you walk in the door there, 
And there's this picture of this very, very, very tall man. It's the tallest man that Guinness has ever recorded uh, as living. He was close to nine feet tall. Uh, that was in 1940. His name was Robert Wadlow. He lived in Illinois. He was 8 feet 11 inches tall. Uh, in the modern world today, the tallest recorded man is a farmer in Turkey who's 8 foot 3 inches tall. And so these, this picture of Goliath we have, while very unusual, is not outside the realm of even modern possibilities when we look at height. But the picture here is much greater than the picture we see in the Ripley's Museum. Or if you look at the picture of the modern-day guy in Turkey. Because usually, people who are that tall in our modern context, there's some genetic issue or something where they're very tall, but they're kind of lanky-looking. They're not real imposing. And the picture we have here of Goliath is not that at all. This is the picture of a very imposing, very powerful warrior. Because in addition to his great height... We're told about his armor and his weapons, about his helmet of bronze and his coat of mail. Now, that's not a coat of letters. Those are, are small little metal rings. And we're told here that that coat, when you convert the measurements, weighed about 125 pounds. I mean, picture putting that on this morning as you're walking out the door. And it's not just that coat. He's got all this extra armor and this shield and these weapons. And all of this would be extremely imposing to anyone who would see him. Even if you were up on the mountain range and you were looking down at the valley, when you saw Goliath come out, you saw him tower over all the other Philistines. It was meant to terrify the Israelites. And that's exactly what he did. One commentator I read said it this way, that the first impression of Goliath made an awesome and psychologically overpowering effect on all who saw him. And then he speaks, and he gives this challenge. It's not just that he's imposing in how he looks. He throws out this very imposing challenge and says, you send out a man. And notice he says, I'm not going to take on your army. I'm not going to take on a group of your army. Let's just do a one-on-one -on -one battle here. And you send out a man to fight me. Now, if, if your warrior defeats me, then, then all of my people, all the Philistines, they're your slaves. But if I defeat him, then all of you, the Israelites, you're going to be our slaves. And then you can almost just kind of picture what happens here. As he gives this challenge, the scripture says for 40 days, over and over and over again, that the Israelites are just kind of looking at each other. <laughs> You know, perhaps it's one of those you see at times where everybody tries to step back and have one person left forward. And nobody's really willing to take him on. And in fact, I think what may have been going through a lot of their minds at this point was what they demanded of God when they asked for a king. If you remember that earlier in 1 Samuel, when the Israelites are demanding a king from God, what did they say? We want a king who will go out before us and who will wage war for us. One who will go and will fight on our behalf. And what does God warn the people with through Samuel? He says, listen, that's not how it's going to work. When you go into battle, he's going to take your sons into battle. He's going to take your children into battle. They're the ones who are going to do the fighting. But the Israelites here are probably still thinking about that demand they made of God. And they're kind of looking to Saul. And they're waiting for Saul to go out there as their king and take on Goliath. I mean, God's removed his anointing from Saul, but Saul is still functionally the king over the people. 
And that's who they're looking to. But notice Saul's response there in verse 11. He and his army, so, so he included, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Literally, that means they were filled with terror and fear. And here's where we see a contrast. And we're going to look more at David's response next week, but, but we already know a bit about how David responds in this situation. And you see a great contrast here between David and Saul. Between the, this fear, this trembling of Saul, this, this cowering of Saul that we've already seen before. And what looks to be this, this courageousness of David. And what we're tempted to do when we look at this contrast is to say, well, well look at how much greater David's faith was. Look at how much stronger David's faith was. So, so Saul must have had a weak faith, and David had a strong faith, and that's why David was able to take on Goliath, and Saul was not. But I don't think the issue at work here is the strength of their faith. I think the issue at work here is the substance of their faith. And I think what we see here is we see one in Saul who is not in a right relationship with God and therefore is not functioning out of a foundation of faith at all. And then we see David who at this point is in a right relationship with God and therefore is walking by faith and not by sight. The issue is not a weak faith versus a strong faith. The issue is one who doesn't have faith and one who does. And that's what I believe we're seeing here as we look at this contrast between Saul and between David. Because Saul is one at this point who is not in a right relationship with God. And why is he not in a right relationship with God? Because he has sinned and he has refused to repent. As we've watched the pattern of Saul's sin against God, it starts with impatience. It starts with not being willing to wait on God, being willing to trust in God. It doesn't start with Saul just shaking his fist defiantly at God. It starts with him wanting to be in control. Him wanting to call his own shots. And as he does these things, he continues and he persists in his sin. And then when he's called into account over it, ultimately he's not repentant. It's kind of more of a scenario of, I'm sorry I got caught, rather than I'm really sorry for my sin. And so there's no real heart change in Saul. And as that continues, it gets to the point, to the culmination, where God removes his spirit from Saul. And then he's just tormented. And as we've looked already, that, that torment, I believe, was, was a burden of conviction on him. And he just refuses to repent. And so this fellowship with God and Saul, it is completely broken. Because of Saul's sin. But what we see of David here is representative of someone who has faith in God. Who has trust in God. And so, as he encounters this challenge from Goliath, his first thought is not about being outmanned or outnumbered, about how big Goliath is. His very first thought is about God and His glory. And this is the army of God. And, and who is this guy to speak to God's army this way. We compare that with Saul. And Saul's response is a completely worldly one. He doesn't speak of God. He doesn't speak of faith. He doesn't stop to pray. He just looks at Goliath and his mockery of Israel. And he comes up with a very worldly response. Well, maybe I can buy my way out of this. 
You know, if anybody will take on Goliath, then, then, then I will give him riches and I will give him my daughter and I, I'll make his household free from taxes. Saul's approach to this is completely worldly. And so Saul here is not a man of weak faith. Saul, I believe, here is a man without faith. Because he doesn't have a right relationship with God. And so I think the question for us as we consider what's taking place between David and Saul leading up to what takes place between David and Goliath ultimately is this. We see a picture of Saul not in a right, right relationship with God. I believe we see a picture of David in a right relationship with God. And so the, picture, the question ultimately for us is this. Are we, are you, am I, are we in a right relationship with God today? We're at a point in the year where it's very common that we make resolutions. We make commitments. And perhaps for some of you, you've made some spiritual resolutions, some spiritual commitments. You know, maybe part of your New Year's resolution is I'm going to go to church every Sunday this year. And again, you got perfect attendance so far. Maybe it's I'm going to read my Bible more this year. I'm going to pray more this year. I'm going to trust God more this year. And maybe you have these spiritual resolutions you've made. And those are good things to have. But those spiritual resolutions won't save you. And if those spiritual resolutions are built on a foundation of worldliness, meaning you're not in a right relationship with God, then those spiritual resolutions aren't going to do much for you. Those resolutions need to be based on a foundation of being right with a holy God. If you're not at peace with God today, it doesn't matter what you resolve to do. And so that's the first question. Are you at peace with God? And it all comes back to our response to the gospel. We see in the scripture this very clear picture. That we, along with many before us, have sinned. And that sin, like Saul's sin, it has broken our fellowship with God. And we are separated from God. In fact, we are deserving the judgment that we see already on Saul. We deserve the wrath of God for our sin. But God is gracious towards us. We see in Romans 5, 8, He demonstrates His love to us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus died in our place on the cross. And if we will place our trust, our hope, our faith in Christ, then we see that great exchange where we receive the righteousness of Christ as He takes on the weight of our sin. And we see that passage we read earlier, that, that, that He conquers sin and death. He takes our penalty for us, And that now puts us in a right relationship with God. Well, we don't have this issue of, of unrepentant sin and this barrier of sin between us. No, Jesus has paid our debt and we're trusting in God now. now that doesn't mean that we're perfect people. We're still going to sin. We're still going to fall short. But the scripture tells us as we sin, as we do these things, we confess our sins to God. He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we grow in our faith in God through the gospel of Jesus. But the gospel of Jesus is foundational. And if we haven't responded to the gospel rightly, if we haven't truly trusted in Christ, if we're not following Him today, then it doesn't matter what we resolve. And we see that picture, I believe, here as we look at this contrast between Saul and between David. And so in order to walk by faith, we need to be at peace with God. We need to have a right relationship with God that's foundational and then as we do and then we learn this second all-important point 
that I've put in your outline there. If God is for us, who can be against us? Long before the Apostle Paul quotes this to the believers in Rome, in Romans 8.31, essentially we see David posing this question to the Israelites as he encounters them at this battle line. So again, in the context here, uh, we have a picture of David who is dividing his time between his father's field and serving in Saul's court. Uh, if you were with us when we looked two Sundays ago at, at this situation, we saw uh, David was privately uh, anointed by Samuel in front of his family. But this was not a, a public situation. And so he, he is not operating, functioning as, a, as the king at this point. But he, he has been anointed by Samuel. And then in God's providence... God brings him into the court of Saul because Saul has this tormenting spirit on him and it seems the only thing that can soothe him is for David to come and play an instrument for him. And so David, by God's grace, is already kind of in the court of Saul, but he's dividing his time between there and his father's fields. And so when we come into 1 Samuel, we find, uh, 1 Samuel 17, that David's back home, he, he's in the fields, and his father comes to him and he says, listen, I, I want to send provisions to your brothers. And there's all types of details here. It helps us understand that Jesse was too old to fight, and that's why he sent his sons on his behalf. And he just sent those older three. They were the ones old enough to serve in the army. And so David's just to take them provisions and take provisions to, to their commander. And so as David goes and he does this, he's rather intrigued by what's taking place. He hears all that's going on. And he wants to go and see his brothers there at the front, at the battle line. And so he, he leaves those provisions with someone. He, he goes down there and then he encounters this challenge from Goliath. And notice how different David's response to this challenge is than Saul and than anyone else in the army. And in fact, it's interesting. We, we've learned about David already. We've seen David already. But these are the first words we have recorded in the Bible that are spoken by David. It's not that he hasn't spoken before, but, but this is the first thing that in God's providence he places in his word that was spoken by David. And they're very good words as he comes and he sees Goliath and he, he hears this challenge. And he says this, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the approach from Israel? His very first concern is this reproach of Israel. His very first concern is who is this uncircumcised Philistine to issue such a demand against the armies of the living God? In fact, that's his second question. Who is he that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so notice the contrast here. On one hand, you have Saul just trying to buy his way out, bribe his way out, pay someone else to go take on Goliath, realizing they're probably just going to get wiped out in the battle. And here's David encountering this situation saying, who is this guy? I know who my God is. Who is this guy? And why hasn't anybody taken care of this yet? And what's going to be done for the one who has? And I think the reason he asked that question is because that apparently is all that the army is talking about at this point is they're trying to get someone to take on Goliath. In essence, David here looks at this army that's been cowering for 40 days, and Saul, who's been cowering for 40 days, and he issues that question from Romans 8. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Certainly not this guy out on the battlefield. That seems to be his attitude. 
Because David understands that this isn't about Saul versus Goliath. That this isn't even about the Israelites versus Goliath. That the true battle here is between God and Goliath. And God's not the underdog. God will be victorious. And David is essentially saying, who's going to stand in the place and be used by God to conquer the enemy of God? Again, the issue here is not, wow, if we could just have faith like David. No, the issue is, we can have faith like David if our faith is in the God of David. The lesson here is not about us mustering up the strength to take on the Goliaths of this world. The lesson here is for us to trust in the God who has already conquered the Goliaths of this world. And that's the picture we see here in David. And that's the faith that we too are called to have. And then we have a few verses here that, that, that might seem a little out of the ordinary as we look at Eliab's response to David, and again, we, we could spend a whole sermon looking at this, but, but just in summary, uh, this is the older brother of David, and his response to David is very critical. <laughs> uh, he looks at David and basically you know, questions his intentions, and why are you even here, and you just came here to watch the battle. Hey, he's extremely critical of him, and we can pretty quickly kind of guess why. I mean, Eliab is the first one that's passed over by Samuel when Samuel comes to anoint a son of Jesse. And so he, the older brother that everyone would have been looking to, is the one to, to serve in this capacity. He just got passed right over. And you kind of got this picture throughout the Scripture of the older brother and their criticisms of the younger brother, especially when they're passed over in some way. You've got that with Joseph and his brothers. You've certainly got that in the parable we had that Jesus gives of the prodigal son and the way his older brother responds. And so just kind of a side note here as we see that this critical spirit, that this pride in Eliab, don't be on Eliab. <laughs> don't do that. Don't be the one that's always critical of everybody. That's so prideful. Don't be the one who, who doesn't believe that God can use anyone for His glory, even our younger brothers. Don't be the older brother in this situation. Don't be like Eliab. And understand that if God is for us, who can be against us? That the issue at stake here is not about the person that God uses. The issue at stake here is the God who uses the person. And so our trust, our hope is to be in God and to understand as we trust in God, if God is indeed for us, friends, who can be against us? This is the lesson that the Israelites are about to learn. And this is the lesson I hope that we are learning today. But again, the Christian life is not so much about us going out there and having a strong enough faith to take on the Goliaths of this world. Again, the Christian life is about trusting in the one who has already taken them on. And that's what we were speaking of in that passage we read earlier. Oh, death, where is your sting? That the great Goliath that we all face in this life is sin and death. The great Goliath that we all face is the devastating consequences of the fall. And we serve the one who has stared that enemy in the face and has already conquered that Goliath. And we serve the one who says to us, if your trust is in me, then you have victory through me. We serve the one who has already conquered our Goliath. Not the one who tells us, well, if you just are strong enough, well, you can take on the Goliaths in your life. 
And so the lesson here, and the one that we'll continue to look at next Lord's Day, is essentially this. That Jesus faced Goliath on the cross, and he struck him down. And that our hope, our trust, needs to be rooted in Christ. That no one today is asking you to be more like David. Because as we will see, David sins and David falls. Don't be more like David. No, the issue, the question, the point of all the scripture is for us to be more like Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is this. As we put our hope in Jesus and our trust in Jesus, then God does a transforming work in our lives where we then become more and more like Jesus. So friends, today, don't look to David as the hero. Look to Jesus. <laughs> and don't look to someone else in your life and say, well, well I could just be more like them. But look, look to Jesus. And understand that, that whatever may come this year, again, I have no idea what 2021 is going to be like. I had no idea what last year was going to be like. That there will be hardships that come our way. So some of you will suffer greatly this year. There will be great struggles this year. And the lesson from 1 Samuel 17 is not, well, if you just have enough faith, you won't have any of those struggles. If you just have enough faith, you won't have any of those problems. No, the lesson from 1 Samuel 17 is that as you have those struggles and as you have those problems, if you're rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if God is for you, no one can be against you. And that doesn't mean you'll have perfect health or abundance of wealth, but that does mean that glory awaits us if our trust and our hope is in Jesus. And that means when the worst of this world befalls us, we can walk through it if our hope and our trust is in Jesus. So friend, is your hope and trust in Jesus today? And if it's not, then let's start this year out right. And let's place our full hope and our full trust in Him today. If you would pray to that end with me. Father God, we thank You for the constant reminder from Your Word that if You are for us, who can be against us? And Lord, the, the clear message of Scripture is this, that through the Gospel of Jesus, You are most indeed for us. That you demonstrate your love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, that you are indeed for us and that your desire for us is our faith and our repentance. And so I pray that's how we would respond today. That our hope and our trust would be in you. Well, there are many people today who have likely made goals this year. And, and goals are fine. Goals are good things. But Lord, if we make those things in place of the, the most important resolve that we need to have then they will be in vain and the most important resolve is this that we need to place our trust and our hope in jesus and we need to operate this year out of a foundation of faith in you through christ and so i pray lord you would help us to have that faith and to grow in that faith in this year and every year to come and we ask this in jesus name amen and church family if you would Stand together as we offer this opportunity to respond to God's word this morning. And as we offer this opportunity to respond, just as we do each Lord's Day, we invite you to do a number of things. And maybe the Lord is leading you to, to come forward this morning to make a, a public profession of your faith in Jesus. And maybe that he's leading you to come forward to, to follow through in obedience and, and baptism. You've, you've placed your trust in Jesus, but you've not followed in, in believer's baptism. And maybe he's leading you to come and start this year off by starting the process of joining this church fellowship, this church 
family through becoming a member here. It may just be you need someone to pray with you, and I'd be glad to do that. Others would be as well. It may be that as we sing, you need to just take a moment where you're at and just pray. That you need to process through what the Spirit of God is saying to your heart right now through the word that has just been proclaimed to you. Perhaps your trust has not been in God, it's been in yourself. Perhaps like Saul, you've made all kinds of worldly resolves of how you're going to take on the Goliath. Well, what you really need to do is trust in Jesus who's already conquered the Goliath. And maybe you see that like Saul, there's some area of your life that you need to repent of and you've been unrepentant to this point, but that that burden is on you. And friend, today, you can have that burden relieved as you repent and you place your trust in Jesus. So whatever it is, we invite you to respond. We invite you to sing as we worship and sing this this faithful reminder that all of this is possible through Christ and through Christ alone. So let's lift our voices now and let's respond to God's word.